Hi everyone, Rai Marcatilio here. We are doing something a little different this week with the podcast by bringing over a recent conversation from our Connect to the Show, where we bring together a group of infrastructure and policy experts to dive deep into the issues of the day. All of those episodes can be found at connectthisshow.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a special episode of Connect This. Should have seen my smile when I realized 10 seconds ago what I was going to say here, because I know that Kim is going to love this. <laughs> Ordinarily, we have a guest on the show, Douglas Dawson, but today we are Douglas. <laughs> uh, no Doug, Douglas. Not bad, not bad. All right. All right. I'm Christopher Rancho with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Please do not penalize them for my lack of creativity or suaveness. Uh, Kim is with Utopia Fiber. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And I mean, I love the pity laughs the other panelists gave you, but I just gave you an eye roll. But it's good to be here, Christopher. <laughs> Excellent. We have, uh, we have a, a lot of subjects to talk about today, and we're always open if people want to throw anything into the comments of what we can suggest. We got a number of suggestions on LinkedIn from Ruben, so looking forward to jumping in on some of those. Uh, we got Travis Carter from USI Fiber. Welcome. Good day, sir. Good day. You enjoying the weather here today? Oh, it's pretty nice. I uh, I went out last night and uh, I saw the U.S. men's national team play uh, over here at Allianz Field in St. Paul, uh, and I was chilly. I uh, was literally cold coming home from the match, so uh, that was uh, it was nice. I'm enjoying it. Were you on a bicycle or were you in a car? I was on a bicycle, and because uh, I can bike to the stadium, it's only a mile away, and. Um, uh, it was chilly there. Uh, I went to the Honduras game in February where I think it was like negative three degrees. Uh, this was like Ooh. 57 degrees. So um, uh, much better. And we were joking that if uh, this game happened, you know, in April, we would actually be out there in T-shirts feeling great. But because it was <laughs> like, you know, it's it the end of summer, we were actually cold. So uh, Heather Gold, welcome back. Thank you. I am uh, I'm thrilled to have you back. We've invited you a few times. Unfortunately, you're often traveling in the orbit of Kim. So if Kim's not available, then you're often not available too. I live on an airplane. <laughs> we are going to tap into, uh, uh, you know, I think some of that expertise that uh, you bring, Heather, uh, the insight into the industry. Um, with some of our questions today, trying to, I was kind of trying to avoid some of the ones that I know Doug would really want to dig into. So um, today we are going to be talking about some of the models for partnerships and why some communities don't uh, bring those, uh, don't, don't jump into those maybe. Uh, we're going to talk about the states relying on ACP and what they might be doing. By the way, I know that my screen's flickering. I have no idea what's going on with this. It's like a motherboard issue. I have died different cameras and whatever. So I'm sorry. I'm a flicker guy today. Um, we're going to talk about the letter of credit, whether that's uh, having any movement. We're going to talk about this Wall Street Journal article, which was not terrible, but I think was kind of terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, a little... uh, 
This is the this was the article um, about the fifty three thousand dollar connection, and I felt like I felt like it was done in a way by a guy who's like a good writer who knows this stuff who didn't want it to be like uh, clickbait, and it was kind of promoted by an editor that wanted it to be clickbait. I feel like there's a little tension there in it, so uh, we'll talk about that article though. Um, uh, there's uh, some questions about um, why people don't understand the importance of uh, of having a high capacity connection and why they might be focused on other things or, or, or dismissing that. We'll talk about uh, Commissioner Anna Gomez, FCC Commissioner. Once again, I called it right. She was new. she was uh, put on the the commission quickly. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about AI and customer well, service. Well, pause. Once again, you were right. Yeah. Well, I'm no. Once again, I'm saying I was right. Like I was right one time, and I've this is the second time I've okay, noticed I, I was right that one time. This. Yeah, I I think the the per, the perception of people was you're right often, and I think it's three to zero chicken wings right now. So <laughs> yeah, no, that's the case, and I think on Friday I'm gonna I'm gonna make good on a little bit of what I owe you. So ooh, love it. Yeah, yeah. um, and uh, maybe a little bit about charter and rural stuff if there's time, but uh, there's always room for question or comments. Uh, one, if you have anything you want us to say, you better be real nice about it because I think you gave me a negative one for my Douglas joke. <laughs> so uh, big trouble there. Um, uh, but I wanted to uh, dive right in. Um, I saw a story that uh, is pretty cool from uh, Vermont Digger. VT Digger um, is uh, it's a place I've gotten some news about Vermont over the years. Uh, so do some independent reporting. And uh, uh, Vermont has these public utility districts. Um, no, community utility districts, community union districts, communications union districts. You could get that wrong a lot of different ways, it turns out. Yeah. Yeah. Vermont has communications union districts. Um, no, Vermont has communications. Union districts. Maine has broadband union districts. At any rate, communities get together to resolve these issues. A number of them in Vermont, these different towns working together, were going to work with Google Fiber and then decided that, well, I don't know if they decided, but it didn't work out with the model they wanted to do with uh, Google Fiber. And uh, now they are working with um, uh, Great Works Internet, GWI, which is a fantastic network out of Maine, been around for a long time. But it caused me to think a little bit about how much I think that this model, um, which I, I think the Huntsville model is good. I know that this controversial among some folks. I think the West Des Moines model is really great. So I want to start by talking uh, a little bit about that and why we don't see more cities doing it. Because I've been surprised we haven't seen more cities saying we want that Google Fiber magic and we're going to use that model. Um, Kim, do you want to describe that model quick? Because otherwise I, I'm just going to keep talking and talking and talking. Yeah. I just think it's basically the city, either they put in the conduit or they put in the fiber, the private sector, which in this case is Google will do the drop to the home and offer the services inside the home. But I have to flip the script on you, Christopher Mitchell. What if it's Google, um, who's pulling out of some of these models who are saying these markets might not. Um, work for us. I mean, I don't know what the case is, but I think that we're just assuming that the city pulled out. But do we know any differently on these? I think um, there might be a combination, but my sense mm -hmm. is, is that Google has fewer of these deals than they would like to do. I think they're doing pretty well. I think they're just lower key about some of these. I think no, no. I think, I think Google's. So I mean, Google has broadly Google Fiber to be clear, because it is. A, it's G Fiber now. They just rebranded. It's G Fiber. Yeah, it's oh, G Fiber. No. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not on board. Um, 
<laughs> G-Fiber. Um, they, <laughs> they, have, they have two broad models that you could put in their buckets. Like one that just they just keep announcing new city after new city is where Google comes in, they build the network, they own the network. Uh, what we haven't seen is more announcements with G-Fiber where the community owns the asset, like the conduit in West Des Moines or the fiber in Huntsville. And, um, and then uh, G-Fiber commits to like a 20-year long-term lease for that and others can use it as well. Um, so uh, I don't think we've seen, I mean, I think we've seen Google, we've seen G-Fiber announcing a bunch of new deals with um, cities, but I don't think we've seen any of these partnerships coming about recently. And so I would think, you know, well, first of all, maybe the city, I mean, Google Fiber may not see the value in a particular city. I mean, that may be one. The economic value might not be there for them. And um, then Google Fiber itself, or Fiber, which somebody just posted is the G is silent, um, might decide that the even in these Vermont, the CUDs or the PUDs, it's not enough um, what they have to pay versus how many subscribers they could potentially get is insufficient to make their business case. So I think, as Kim said, there's a lot of things we have to look at, like who pulled out or who doesn't want them or, you know, what went wrong here. Um, because, you know, no matter where the build is, you have to have, um, you know, this is the whole sustainability issue on these startups. Do we have sufficient subscribers to keep the network going, including supporting a knock, operations and maintenance, call centers, et cetera, after the build is done, after the capital is spent? Um, I think that's going to become an increasingly large question. But I don't, I mean, cities may not just they may not want to do the investment, even though for a lot of them, they already have it. And I, I think they just haven't considered that. I think that's a big piece of it. I think cities don't want to put up as much money. Um, and, and even though Google might be putting up, you know, my sense of uh, West Des Moines and Huntsville is that as approach, Google has put up about half of the money, um, usually less than half, but approaching half of the money that is needed for the capital build and over a 20-year uh, lease of the network. And so they're but, not bringing the money to the table on day one, but they are committed to a long-term lease of the assets. And I think that's cities are not looking to put as much skin in the game as as um, they might have to. And I think they that's a mistake. Might... I think that's oh, a mistake. You don't think... I, don't, I think that cities realize that if they get somebody who's free, that's better than putting up their own, like any capacity, which I disagree with because I actually believe they should own the asset. But if you're sitting on that in that city council room and you're saying, I have a free option or I have to bond for 30 million to pay for the backbone, like it's a it's a pretty clear answer when you're looking at it from that aspect. You have to get into the aspect of why you would want to own it, why you would want to go down this model. But somebody said to me once, and I thought this was very interesting on Google's um, behalf of that if you're Google walking into these cities, they're expecting a, a cash cow that Google is going to come right. to the table and pay for everything. Yeah, and but I it's not Google unfair. anymore. It's, it's GoFiber. GoFiber. <laughs> um, so uh, we're, they're going to kill us for saying this. But I think that's unfair to them because because of their branding on other aspects and 
um, that they're getting this reputation in which they'll come to the city and pay for everything that the city wants and be at the city's um, beck and call. So mm -hmm. I think it's a little bit of both. And, and Kim, they've always been honest about the steps that a city has to take um, to attract them. And it's like somehow that just goes over everybody's head. They don't realize the hard, realize the hard work that their early cities did to make it worth Google's while to come and invest. Like a Kansas City with, you know, strong arming the Kansas City Power and Light to let them have access to the polls, single point of contract, all those preliminary things. People don't understand they have a big investment to make too. It's not just on Google's part. Travis? Well, my perspective is a little bit smaller, probably because I've only dealt with about 12 different cities in my entire fiber career. And I have only ever found one that conduit and fiber even percolated to the top 50 items on their list of priorities. I think they were even aware of it. <laughs> exactly. You know, they, when, they always, again, from my small sample, they always look dumbfounded the fact like why would we do that somebody you know forever you know the the um, the incumbents have taken care of it and the other factor that has come up more than once is they're really nervous about disturbing the cable franchise tv revenue they get in so if a fiber overbuilder comes in you know what does that do to their actual revenues which is the things that they really rely on but I yeah think some cities dumb more argument than i think that's a dumb argument because I, it's I, leaving. I I don't disagree with you, but that's just the way they think. And I've also learned with these cities, they think in these little two or four window periods of time, basically from election to election. And these fiber builds, I mean, this is a 10, 20, 30 year right. engagement. I, I don't really ever see people that are terribly interested in fighting the long battle. They're just trying to get to the next the next hurdle. And, and that's probably why you find... In, in many situations, like in Huntsville and Springfield, it was the, um, it, we've got some expert on the linking in here. Um, it, it was the, the utility that worked with, um, with Google. I mean, it's sort of semi-removed. Obviously, they had to have permission of the political establishment, but they sort of took it one step removed yeah, and I think um, if I think this is this gets to some of the insanity around our our um, our system in this in some ways, in that uh, cities should have some uh, predictable amount of revenue coming in from a franchise to be on the polls to deliver uh, any kind of service. Uh, however, uh, right now that is um, different for a cable TV service versus other things. And in some cases, that's a real distortion. And so, you know, if we lived in a country where we're serious about uh, government, whether that was local, state or federal, uh, there would probably be some kind of uniform uh, fee for any right. wire that is on the polls and cities wouldn't be worried about promoting one service over another. Um, and I, I would just say that from Travis, I the thing that I said that I spoke at the same time as Kim is that some cities take this much more seriously than, than other cities when it comes to that revenue, I think. Well, let's, let's also not forget that, again, this is from my small sample size, the city staff isn't real excited about a big construction project in the city. 
So if if revenues are down, they don't have to deal with all the neighbors being angry about there being construction happening. And again, a lot of these people, they don't even live in the town they they serve. So there's not a lot of benefit to them. Wait, what do you mean? Like the elected officials? Oh, even even the staff. Oh, they're they're just not gung ho about, you know, having the, the whole city torn up for a year or two and their phones ringing off the hook. You know, franchise agreements are going down and they have to deal with you. I, it's just, it's a lot to, it's a lot to take in for personally, not but, a lot of reward for them. But Travis, don't you think communities have gotten a lot more sensitive to this since the pandemic? I mean, that I would have said you're right pre pandemic, but I'm a little, little surprised that you think that that's the, still the attitude, the sort of, it's not worth the, aggravation well, the only thing that's cool that's interesting about the pandemic is it's a really good opportunity to talk about this stuff but i i feel there's a big bridge between talking about it and actually executing well i think it goes back to education i think heather that you're right and i think that travis you're right i think that the cities think that they need this but once they get into the weeds of like looking at all of the dynamics that come along with like to undertaking a project like this, it becomes overwhelming. And then the private sector, big telcos come in and say, we're going to solve your problems. And a lot of cities are like, oh, okay, let's try this again for the 15th. And not, not only that, I feel like there's two sides of that coin. One is like, we could solve your problems. Or if you oppose us, we could create new problems for you. I mean, right. in Lafayette, Louisiana, the, the cable company, I believe it was, but I could be confusing with a telephone company. One of the interests like started making the public utilities life miserable, like lobbying against water rate increases just to try to punish them for having the temerity to build a broadband network that competed with them. Uh, and so, you know, the, the cable and telephone companies can play hardball in really nasty ways in a lot of these places. And yeah. so there's, that's just the flip side. Uh, so we, there's a lot more that I think we could dig in on that, but I think it provides a lot of context. Uh, and um, I didn't spell this out, but uh, we had a, our LinkedIn user uh, did note. Uh, so if people weren't familiar with this, the franchise payments for cable are typically only for the cable service, the linear cable television service, not for other services like home uh, burglary stuff, uh, not for television, I'm sorry, not for telephone or for broadband. And so that's what we were talking about in terms of it being like a weird distortion. Um, I want to talk, uh, I think this can probably I, will I be- One more quick element there that I yeah, think is key to this is the other thing I hear commonly when I we talk to these cities is, where am I going to get the budget to hire the people to manage this? They don't, they, they, I hear this constantly. We don't even have staff to manage the projects we have. Right, right, right. But you know, that's where you can get a company like a Google to help you do that. I mean, if they're going to want the, to ride that network and use it as their own, they might be willing to come in and help you with those telco type of issues. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I do think that's the case. Um, I think, um, I mean, if I was to make the case and I think, you know, um, Roger, you know, Kim's boss would probably be, you know, angry at, uh, at us not talking about more detail about whether the, the, the fiber, um, arrangement is good or not for cities. Um, I happen to think it's fairly reasonable for a city that finds one lessor of the network, lessee, I don't, one 
entity that leases the network um, <laughs> that you know pays a, a lot of the cost. In uh, in uh, the case of the um, West Des Moines, you know, MediaCom is now on it. There might be another one. And so the city has a fiber network that they can use for smart city almost anywhere in the city. And they're paying a pretty small portion of that, you know? And so I think the problem is what Kim had said in part was cities don't want to bring that money up front, even if after three or four years, they'll be shouldering very little of the cost. No, I, I would agree. But I think that Rogers, um, when he's criticized these models is, and I haven't heard it in a while. So I'll, I'll preface that is that they're open access he would say that they're not open access because, and we talked about this pre-show is we like at Utopia Fiber, our D mark is inside the house at the ONT. Every, a lot of these projects from what I know, I mean, I can't see yeah, right. everyone are at the curb. You, the, the, the provider is bringing the, the conduit and the ONT in the home. So you're really, the barrier to switch providers is very high if anybody would do yeah. it at all. So I think it's just a difference in opinion and models, but it's not like, I think it's not a criticism. I just think it's a difference of how people are viewing what things are called. Right. Well, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, uh, if you are a community that wants to have robust competition like you have in Utah, uh, the GoFiber uh, partnership is not that model. If you want to bring in a few potential providers and 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 have and ensure that you have citywide service and an infrastructure that could be available to be leased citywide, and you want to have like a very low cost citywide smart city type of, of fabric, then that is a good model. So, but I think people need to under, appreciate what they're actually getting into. Yeah. yeah. Um, so who would, who would want to compete against Google? I'll, I'll always bring that up. There's yeah. not, there's not going to be a second provider. You know, oh, maybe, there is though. There are, I mean, I think, well, media, maybe the incumbent cable company, but you're not going to have just, you know, an independent go in there and try to compete. And also let's not forget West Des Moines is not Des Moines. It's a small part. It's, you know, it's maybe 25% of Des Moines that's even served. So let's not forget that. Yeah, West Des Moines is a wealthy suburb of of Des Moines. Well, um, let's keep that in mind. We're not serving the whole city in this project. No, but West Des Moines is a city. So West Des Moines is not the entire Des Moines, the city of Des Moines. It's not. It's actually its own municipality, kind of like St. Louis. It's like it's West Des Moines is the St. Louis Park of Des Moines. Yeah, yeah no, I, I get it. Wow. Yeah. So, in in, in us Minnesota terms, um, so. Um, like, like I said, we just gotta we gotta move on to a couple of other of other topics. Um, you know, the ACP. Uh, I don't know. I feel like people are, are on the hope again. Like, I mean, in just our little of our pre chatter, Kim. It seemed to me like you you feel like I feel like a month or two ago we bottomed out and thinking that the ACP might not be renewed. I feel like people are once again thinking there's a shot at it being renewed. I think a lot of these programs are dependent on it being renewed. You're seeing a lot of the programs around the country from states saying you have to have a low cost program. You have to partner with ACP. And I, I, I'm reading these programs that I'm like, uh, does anybody know that ACP yeah, but, is at risk of not being refunded? And Kim, the scary part is a lot of them don't say it's, you have to part. They all say you have to participate in ACP, but they also say you have to have a low cost option. They don't link those two necessarily. So, if ACP goes away, how are carriers going to be able to afford a low cost option? That's what I think the big risk is. Yeah. I mean, you might be looking at 30% of your subscriber base in some of these areas, whether you're rural or urban, but you know, you, a substantial amount of your subscriber base, uh, suddenly um, you're losing $30 a month on all of those. That's a major hit to your revenue. Yep. 
Okay, yeah. but I have a question for Travis. So Travis, you lose every bit of ACP funding that you're getting for the program that you're um, you're participating in ACP now. Would you offer a price point similar um, to them getting ACP? No. Don't you have to opt offer a low cost option though? Travis doesn't have any uh, hooks in mm -hmm. him. Oh. Well, the the other thing in our financial models, I don't include the ACP as as revenue uh, predictable in our in our in our future financial model. I build all the financial models assuming ACP disappears because I, I can't, I can't be in a situation where, you know, whatever all this alphabet soup that goes on in the government doesn't happen that, you know, we're not having to lay people off because of it. So that's just the way we, that I choose to do the financial model, but to answer Heather, no, we don't, we don't take any federal or state dollars. We do it all privately. Got it. Got it. Now, Travis, does that mean that your models predict that you would have, uh, if ACP disappears, you would lose a certain number of subscribers at that point? How do you, how would you anticipate that? Well, we, we, we would do a transition. You know, we would tell them, hey, ACP has disappeared. You know, we'll give you a period of time to find an, you know, an alternate solution. If you'd like to stay with us, you know, the current retail rate would be what we would migrate you to. And your lowest cost offering is what, $50 a month right now? 50 bucks, yeah. Yeah. Kim, is that, is that sort of how you're going to deal with it if it ever comes well, to pass? I mean, so we don't offer ACP, our providers oh, right. do. So I think yeah. that's um, a different, um, a little beast, but I, I think it's going to be interesting. And I'm going to pivot this conversation a little bit of what is low cost? I mean, I see a lot of these programs say that they need a low cost option. And then I see numbers. Where are they? You and Travis keep ganging up on me. I hate this conversation. Oh, okay. No, it's. Hey, man. How did they come up with $30 a month? That's the one that blows my mind. Because it was less than 50. <laughs> I mean, you know, at a certain point, they could have they could have said like, oh, we have this sophisticated argument. They just, they picked a number. It's politics. They picked a number in the middle. That would work for yeah. them. Yeah. No, you're right. In his yeah, round. They don't seem to have a low cost property tax model we can sign up for, do they? Because that doesn't ever go down. But internet gets <laughs> slammed on. Um, I mean, I do, I do think we can talk more about this question about what is low cost, but um, uh, in the past, I would say it ranges between zero and 15, zero and $30 a month with a concentration around 10 to $15 a month is the assumption. Uh, however, there are a bunch of things baked into that uh, and people who um, uh, challenge people who have very low incomes uh, you know, often are able to afford cigarettes and other things that they prioritize. This often comes up and it's kind of an ugly conversation in some ways, because I don't think many of us like to be in a position where we're telling other people how to run their budgets, at least, you know, for a more libertarian spirit like myself, I'm deeply uncomfortable with like those sorts of discussions. You're a libertarian. Who knew, Chris? I'm but a libertarian I do... spirit. <laughs> I love that uh, we have our little commenter is LinkedIn user. Doesn't even really want to show his name that or her name mm -hmm. that they're watching this. Very mm -hmm. anonymous. I love well, it. No, the, the goal is that we figure out who it is by the end of the show. So we have lots of different topics and this person will keep commenting and then we'll, we'll guess who it is. The hundred dollars, that kind of sounds a little Dougish, doesn't it? So. <laughs> 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 okay, so the other piece of the story, ACP being renewed, but like a bunch of states, their entire plan of, of how to deal with this is basically to uh, rely on the ACP. Um, now that said, we, uh, oh, it's Ruben. Um, 
Um, that said, we have seen a bunch of um, states, and a bunch is probably the wrong word. Some states have been willing to step up and they have a lifeline, their own state lifeline program through USF. They may, like Alabama used uh, its uh, like CARES Act money as a, subs as a subsidy to folks. And so states could subsidize people if the ACP disappears. But I haven't seen many states suggesting that they're thinking about that. They're just hoping that the federal government will solve this problem for them. But should they? I mean, come on. Should states have to plan for the federal government not to renew a program? I think that's a waste of resources and government at its finest. Oh, just in case this is not going to do, we need to have a contingency plan. Like, why well, how don't we different, just work together? I mean, how different of that than all the people that fell off Medicare, Medicaid, when the pandemic was officially declared? I mean, you ha if you think broadband is as important as healthcare, which, you know, more and more people do, then they do see a role for the federal government. I think there is a role for the federal government. I just don't think the states have, should have to wait for the federal government to fail and have backup plans for the federal government to fail. No, I think the federal government should. Where I come into it, I think, is that as a frustration that I feel like the states aren't doing enough to have a working market uh, where there is actually some competition and, uh, and the right incentives to be building in different areas. Um, and so I think the states should be having a role in this, but I feel like they're kind of just like, they keep looking to the federal government and saying, bail us out, bail us out, rather than actually digging in and doing the un potentially unpopular work of, of upsetting the cable and telephone companies. But it's hard to see how you're going to incent a competitive offering if it's based on government, I mean, in small rural areas, if if you're lucky to have enough funding for one carrier, right? Right. But this is where, I mean, I feel like some of the discussions we've had before, and uh, this is where you could try to tease me into a rant, Travis, but I'm going to resist, um, <laughs> you know, which is that the states shouldn't be just tossing money at Charter Spectrum and AT&T. They should be learning from hundreds of years of infrastructure that the way to build the rural stuff is to have these cooperatives that have an incentive to be financially sustainable rather than using their political power in the state capital to just pull more taxpayer dollars out of our wallets. And I just don't see many states doing that. Yeah, but have you, but have you looked at the maps? I mean, it looks like Swiss cheese. How would you build a financial model building the filling in the holes in Swiss cheese? You just can't. Ah, the question is whether the the cheese parts around the holes is actually well served, or if that would also be an area where a co-op could get 50, 60, 70 percent take rate. Because uh, I think a lot of those areas might be, you know, if you go out to rural Minnesota and you find some spot where um, Charter or Comcast operates, that's not their best plant. It's not what I'm getting here. But well, what's the so, what's the definition of served? Well, I go ahead. I, I mean, Chris, you can question. answer this, but I have a I have a different take on this. I was at Fiber Connect um, a couple weeks ago, and I was talking to a state official um, in this lovely United States, and he asked me directly. He goes, "Well, I'm hearing that some carriers won't even build to some of these areas, even if we pay for all the costs," and I'm like. Oh, that's absolutely false, but that's the incumbents and the local providers who are telling you that so you don't give any money to anybody who can challenge um, what is happening. So you, even if the states are saying we want to bring competitive options, they're hearing from these local minorities and very loud saying, oh, just give it to us because nobody else is going to do it right. and we're already here. 
Um, so don't worry about it. So it's a lot. It's not just that they don't. I think that there's a lot of obstacles that go in between that as well. And actually what I would say, guys, is that brings up my big issue, which is clustering for economic sustainability, which is putting together grant areas, even if they're served by different entities, communities, private, whatever, and having them awarded at the same time so they can go out for common contracting, common O&M, um, so that somehow there are enough it's enough of an area to make it scalable for, for vendors that are coming in to serve you. Cause I'm really worried about the sustainability issue and also making it feasible uh, for companies that will qualify under bead to be able to serve the area because you but won't have, Heather, I mean, you're not going to do towns of 2000. No, but I think what I would expect to see based on Travis's ever-present question of who's going to go after this money is that it's almost entirely going to be ISPs that are already in the region who are extending. Um, I mean, to me, I think like actually I think way too much of this is effectively going to be a line extension program rather than a cohesive new network that will actually meet the needs of users. But this brings to my biggest point, and I mean, maybe Travis will agree, but why are we giving private, like public money to private entities to um, help increase their valuation and what the shareholders want? If it is public money and there is like, why aren't we saying that state should own it and allow these providers to use it? I think it's a different conversation. That's just my belief of if it's public money, then it should be a highway, not just um, like a one lane that, that one provider gets to use. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We lost a political fight. Yeah, we. I mean, we lose a lot of political fights, Chris. <laughs> us hippies. Us hippies are everywhere. <laughs> I took a shower today. Don't throw me in with that group. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, Kim, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Heather is who I meant to address this to. Um, I think we're getting a sense. We don't want to spend too much time on the letter of credit because we have – you know, spoken about this at great length. Uh, it sounds like after the most recent salvo, uh, the Connect Humanity uh, or letters signed by over 300 right. entities, it seems like maybe NTIA is finally listening on this. You know, I am. I I'm hopeful. I've heard from others the same thing, Chris. Um, you know, it's just being creative enough to think of. Um, the solutions rather than being fixated on this national bank. Um, let's tie up another 25% of money, which, um, you know, will be challenging for even large carriers. Um, and it's, it's sort of counterintuitive to getting new entrants in the market because who can afford to have find 25% match? Well, that may or may not be your money. So that's one thing but then come up with this other 25% um, it is very problematic when there are other solutions that can be used in the market. So yeah, I, mean, I do, I do think there is some minor it's, I don't get the feeling that it's like BABA where there's an absolute, we're never going to move type of thing. So what you're talking about, it's just to refresh people also, I think, is that um, if you want bead grants, you have to put up 25% minimum, uh, right. perhaps more. Uh, letter of credit is going to tie up another 20 to 25% of your capital uh, to have that letter of credit. And of, maintain the grant, it 
of the amount of the grant. Of the amount of the grant. And then I'll just throw in again, you got 20% that if you're um, any kinds of uh, cooperative structure or any kind of for-profit structure, 20% of the grant is going back to the federal government. So at this point, we're talking about like a cost that is, um, even if you were hoping to get a 75% grant, um, you're looking at well less than 50% in, in fact. And although there's nothing magic about 75%, there was a recognition these are the highest cost areas and there's a significant level of support that is required and it's being nibbled away by unnecessary requirements and, uh, and the failure of Congress uh, to change the uh, policy that uh, taxes these awards. Travis, right. looks like you're going to jump in. I, I go back to my same old question. I'm still waiting. I'd like to meet somebody that's going after one of these things. Because when you do the math, I just don't see how they make it work. I, I really don't. So, Travis, do you think we're going to have money left over when it's all said and done because people aren't going to go after it? Uh, no, I, uh, I think so. The other thing I think you're going to find is, and I've, I've said on this show, I think I was at 100% last time. I'm going to go back to 99.8% of all the money will go to the incumbent providers in the area. And then we will be our once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, I think, is my... Um, my friend, Mr. Mitchell, kept telling me back in the beginning, will effectively be squandered away. So, and then we'll have a new once in a lifetime after this. I don't think I've uh, I've often used that once in a lifetime. I might have once or twice, but uh, I've been pretty opposed to that language. Have you? Okay, all right. Well, I won't. I won't. I won't key that on you anymore. But no, I think it's kind of a sad state of affairs, quite frankly. And the other thing, I, I and again, we talk about this rarely is I actually don't even think the people that really need help are even going to get help on this. And these are the inner city people that are really struggling, you know, well, versus, versus the underserved uh, million dollar mansions out on the lake that I was at two weeks ago. I feel bad for those folks. But, but I, I guess my question is, Travis, would you put like reserve of 25% of your capital for um, like future builds into the bank to even get, get some of this money to build further? I don't think you, I mean, it doesn't no, really make sense. There's no scenario I would ever go after this money. Not in a million years with all these hooks in it. No way. And all these rules and the documentation. And then, God forbid, you get audited. Holy hell. Now you got to deal with that. No, what, why, what, what for? There's so much cash out in the private sector. Why in the world would we be well, messing with this? I mean, I do think there's a difference for like a provider that's focused on a more rural area uh, where um, no amount of private lending is going to get them to a business model that is going to connect those homes on the lake. Um, so there is, I mean, there's, there's just there's a little bit of a difference between your mindset. Yeah, Heather and is spot on, spot on with what she said. These aren't going to be sustainable. So, you know, a real smart incumbent that doesn't get the money, just wait around a few years. You can pick it up for 10 cents on the dollar. Let somebody else build it. And then pick it up because they're just not going to be sustainable. Because okay. it's well, very we'll, scary. It's, it's expensive to, to have a staff and vehicles. And well, that's the thing. None of these. I don't yeah. think any of this money is going to go to entities that aren't already offering service. So exactly. yeah. it's it's not anyone who's coming but, now. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're the incumbent operator, um, but it's going to be entities that that understand what they're getting into, who might be an electric provider in the area, or are you know Charter Spectrum or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there are entities who are building rural now that would like to be involved in further rural build out that aren't necessarily neighboring 
and they're going to have to do a, an analysis of of how to make this sustainable. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Alan Fitzpatrick is watching, but um, you know, I'm curious. Open broadband operates in a bunch of different areas. Um, presumably, they're looking around at different thoughts um, where they want to go after this. I'd be curious what what they're thinking about it. So, Alan, if uh, if you want to come on a future show and and uh, have a duel with Travis about why it makes sense to go after this money, or if you just want to have a a pat on the back fest where you agree that you're not, I'd be curious. You know, for because that's who I think Heather was just describing an ISP like that. Well, Heather, who, uh, who do you think goes? Who do you think wit actually builds and operates a sustainable network off of all these dollars? What's your well? Opinion? I think, I think, um, I think the electric co-ops can build it, but I think they're going to be looking for owner operators to come in and run it for them. I think, to me, that's the next big market um, opportunity: are entities that instead of sitting there going oh, gee, I'll make so many millions when I sell this asset, instead says, you know what, I'll go with the steady revenue. Um, and I'll come in and run a network and put together a consolidated O&M plan or a knock or a call center and serve a whole bunch of smaller towns in an area. I mean, maybe a whole Vermont CUD or PUD um, so that, you know, it makes it makes economic sense. The community still owns and controls its asset, which is what I think they really want at the end of the day. I don't think they want to do a telco. Net I don't think they want to run a telco network. Do you, Kim? I don't think most of them want to, mm -hmm. but I think yeah, they do. They do want to feel like they're controlling their destiny. I and think that's, that's exactly right. This well, is, I think I mean, that's what they should want. I, I, and I think, Heather, that's what we want to see. I'll just, I, I do feel like I wish more agreed with what you're describing. Many of them, I think, just don't want to do anything. I think well, we that you're seeing them. I think, Chris, you're wrong there. I think a lot of them are seeing that they want to control their destiny um, just because in, they've been we promised. In Columbus. And we saw it, we heard it in Columbus where <laughs> these towns, um, you know, in uh, South, what part goes into Virginia? Southeast, in the Appalachia. Appalachia. Yeah. 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 And they're just they're tired of being screwed over by the man. And so they don't want to give up control of their assets anymore. And so, but how can they keep control of the asset, but not be on the hook to run a telco? I mean, that's hard work to run a telco. How long, Heather, how long do you think of an agreement the city would sign with a operator? Because see, that's mm -hmm. the part we've always found so frustrating is the current administration, they're your champions. You put it in, you operate, mm -hmm. you're working just fine. They run a bad campaign, get booted out. The new person comes in, and now you're a pariah. You know. And no, I think you have to have ten to twenty years. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. think you have to be reasonable because remember, these people aren't getting the big bang at the end like you might if you decide to sell yeah. out. I mean, you've got to have some sort of economic justification for having somebody go with the steady revenue versus you know, try to get the big bang at the end. This, yeah, is, think, this is one of the reasons why we've seen an effort to involve pension funds um, because they need that long-term steady mm -hmm. revenue. And I feel like I was hoping that we would see more of that today than we have, but there's a one source of private capital that um, would like that steady return. Well, let's ask Kim. Yeah. So Kim, electric co-op comes to you, city of 5,000 people or whatever that they're willing to build out the the infrastructure would well i guess you're not an isp but in theory would you would provide you provide the ecosystem yeah. we could provide the ecosystem right would you do it 
I mean, I think it just all depends on the, I mean, at the dollars and cents, right? I think it depends of, like, it goes back to what you said, the sustainability of it. Does it make sense for us to have a staff there to manage it? Um, and do we have, what are, what do they have that they can bring to the table that we could utilize? But it's always going to be a business case. Um, it yep. is not easy to make these pencil, no matter where you are, even if you have the volume or you have the scale, it doesn't always make, like, make sense for like even a Utopia or a Google or even some of the like smallest and biggest companies to go into a city and operate it with 3,000 people. And that that's the crux of the situation uh, that Chris says, that most of this is going to go to people who already have infrastructure in those communities. And the problem is, and at least as I see it, and I've said it many times and this the data is a little old but i still think it's prudent it takes about five thousand customers to actually run a correct proper network in an area so mm -hmm. it's real tough if you've got a community of three thousand people you got to cut you're gonna have to cut a lot of corners which ultimately you know can, can you provide a quality enough service to actually compete then right I, I do agree with Heather. I think if you have niche markets that somebody really targets some of these smaller areas and really brings them together and creates the scale to create a business case to run some of these, I think they work. But what I am seeing over and over again is there's a lot of people coming into this space right now who are promising, who think the dollars are there, even if it's from the pension funds who are investing into this, even if it's more just private straight equity coming into this. They don't know what they don't know. They all think the margins are higher than they really are in actuality. So I want to jump to, it's a related story, which is uh, the Wall Street Journal had this article from uh, Ryan Tracy, who I think has uh, done a good job before. You know, I don't follow all of this stuff. I've long been felt that the New York Times had pretty bad telecom coverage. The Wall Street Journal's had a number of people that are, that are pretty good at it. This article, uh, <laughs> it, um, it talks about the, uh, the high cost of some of these networks. And, and it's one of those things I just feel like people don't appreciate. Some of these networks cost a heck of a lot of money to get out to a home, but there's just not that many homes. Like, um, right. And so um, the, uh, the cost here that's highlighted is this, uh, is this cost of this $53,000 home to get out to. Um, and it talks about the different programs. It kind of in the beginning of the article mangles, pushes them all together. And then halfway down, it actually separates them out to federal dollars per location served. And there we see that it's been that the article is kind of picking on the tribal broadband connectivity program, which is focused exclusively on uh, tribal networks. And I, I get my back up a bit on that because like uh, federal governments, you know, took this land from people, uh, made a bunch of promises that it never intended to keep and hasn't kept those promises. And now, you know, if it costs a little bit more or a lot more to connect those homes than it does to connect um, homes in other areas, like, so be it. Like, it's actually not that expensive. We're talking about less than the entire tribal broadband connectivity program is $3 billion. So yeah, like it costs a lot per location. In this case, they say 13335 based on the program so far. Uh, that doesn't break my heart. Uh, if you look at the USDA reconnect, that's $9,000 per location. Those are very small areas. I'll get to you in a second, all of you. Um, and um, <laughs> the, um, the capital projects fund is at a very reasonable $3,000. When we look at the awards from many of the states who are still using the capital projects fund that the, the Biden administration distributed, that's often coming in between two and $3,000 per location served. Like most of these costs are pretty reasonable. So anyway, 
anyway, that's that's the background, and I'm a little bit worked up about it. But I'll let Travis uh, talk me off the are, ledge. Are you I'm a little? Are you a little emotional about this? Are you are you a little emotional about well, this, Christopher? <laughs> I think the guy skewed the data to make a point that he wanted made, rather than looking at the whole universe of what we're going to spend per premise. They they called out the extremes, and you know that's like a ten thousand dollar toilet toilet lid for the military. I mean, you know, it's, it's what is the day in day out cost of most connections. And I just think that was inappropriate. It was so typical of, you know, the way they overregulate welfare mothers versus millionaires. Um, I just, I'm with you. It's sort of, it gets a little bit annoying because most places are not going to cost $53,000 and you have a point Chris, that we made all these promises and then they never got, um, um, you know, they never got anything else out of it. Yeah. Travis, you raised your hand. Well, I was trying to get, get, get you to talk to Kim. So, cause she had a good point. So I did have a good point. I want to make the point of, we keep talking about this tribal and 53,000 per premise but what matters most, kind of to Travis's point, we have a lot of inner city and urban areas who don't have connectivity that are a lot, um, there will be cheaper costs to get to. So yeah. I think it's um, in, those, both in those areas, parts. you're talking about like, you know, 150, 200 bucks per premise. But they're still not getting to those either. So you have these 53 and you have the cheaper. So I think we need to like bookend that both of these matter. And we're only talking about one. And we keep going down this path of only rural and these high costs. But I think it's a conversation of both. No, we um, need to that do, are being missed. I agree. We need to do both. I I always get nervous when um, you know, uh, as Travis notes, like you know, some of this money in the rural areas is going to the millionaires and their it's their third home, and I hate that. And I wish there was some easy way that we could separate that from the retired couple that's actually living on the lake and you yeah. know, that's their first home. And um, you know, they, they work their whole life to be there and we shouldn't be like, Oh, you don't get internet access because you happen to live near a millionaire. Right. That's no way to do it. Um, but I get nervous when we start using that as a justification then, because there are people out there who will say like, Oh, it costs too much in rural areas. And the people that live in the cities aren't deserving. We shouldn't spend any of this money <laughs> in reality. Like, like we are, we are, we are losing money right now in all of the homes who are not connected. Like the amount, it doesn't always come out obviously, right? It's not that like there's an obvious check necessarily, but kids that don't have educational opportunities, whether they are in the city or whether they are in a rural area, they are gonna cost more money for all of us moving forward for social services, crime statistics, whatever, lost productivity, whatever, however you wanna, you wanna look at it. And so we are losing money right now in healthcare. We're paying for Medicare, Medicaid, and, and a variety of other programs where we are overpaying for services because nobody can count on using telehealth at home, right? Like that whole market of telehealth is not developed the way it should because there's no expectation that most people have a connection that could actually support it. So like, there's all these ways in which like we are losing money right now by not solving this problem. And it just drives me nuts when we focus instead on the fact that there's one home or it's $53,000. And you know what? That home, like probably most of that cost is like the fact that the tribe lives 20 miles away from something and they have to build this connection through, uh, you know, federal, federal land or something like that. And it's very high cost. So, um, yeah, that's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. I just, just want to let, let you know that Doug is not here. And we got a rant. We yeah. just got a rant. We're really I excited think, about that. 
but I asked, I think Chris, you're making a good point that they really, I mean, my whole thing when I saw this was they're focused on the wrong thing. I mean, they, they took a, a random data point to make their, to make a point that was not conclusive, you know? Don't mm -hmm. they do that every day, Heather? I mean, let's be honest. I know. Like, that's what the news I, is. <laughs> I mean, the fact that I read the Wall Street Journal that day was only because someone called it to my attention. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, like, not all of us agree with uh, with all the comments, but I just wanted to share. I mean, there are there's a lot of I think sentiment out there that there are ways of of dealing with this, um, and um, you know, uh, billions of dollars is real money, but at the same time, the missing out on years of opportunity and making sure that people have fulfilling lives. The point of the federal government is supposed to be resolving a lot of these kinds of issues and, uh, should be doing a better job of it. Travis, anything right. you want to say on this before we move on? You know, I, I actually, I'm, I'm disappointed in myself because when we started out this whole bead program, I had high hopes. I mean, I was only in the 92%. Well, I was like, your, what are your high hopes, Travis? <laughs> now it's virtually 100. You know, if, if I had to do it over again, I would have put more support behind the WISPs, actually. I think they could have done a lot of, a lot of smaller businesses, family-owned businesses, could have done some good work out in these extremely rural areas. And, and I, I agree with you, Travis. Let me just ask you about this, though, because like there yeah. again, it's not perfect, right? There's a bunch of wisps and, you know, you know, that some of these yeah. folks, they're just going to do the bare minimum. There's a bunch of wisps right. that are going to do far more. They're going to do a great job. Yeah. But there's a fair amount of these. And, the, and some of the ones like the Wall Street is consolidating are in private equity, you know, like they're, they're going to do the bare minimum. And so even if we had gone down that path, we'd also be talking about the waste and missed opportunities, I think. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. And, you know, the, the second thing I would, it's just, I think there needs to be more than just the incumbents. Because the question I have, because I'm I'm not a subscriber to the Wall Street Journal, so I can't read the article, is um, there's, it's behind a paywall. You're a small business owner. You get it for free? No. <laughs> I know. No, we, don't, we don't get anything for free. So the, um, you know, the, the, the question always becomes of this $53,000, what, what did it actually really cost? You know, was it a, was it eight thousand dollars? But by the time all the bureaucracy and all the layers of management and all the permitting fees, you know, who knows how much that did he break it down? Uh, you know, no, that no, yeah. they have not broken it down. But It'd I would be guess really interesting to see because I think everyone's going to leave this conversation thinking it was fifty three thousand dollars worth of construction to get that to happen. I will guarantee you the construction was probably twenty five percent of that, and the bureaucracy was the rest of it. So I would love to dig more into that if we can, because I think it leaves people with a misguided perception that what are the real costs to build these networks versus what the costs are by the time you add all these expenses and, you know, all these engineering studies and feasibility studies and all the other jazz. Environmental review. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, permitting, et cetera. Kim. Okay. I have a question. Like we keep talking about, they are hitting these areas, but like the incumbents are only going to take the money or the WISP should take the money and there's bad WISP and there's good, all these people are good and bad. What if we started measuring customer experience um, from these customers and what quality means from the customer side when we're um, allocating some of this money and how do we measure that? Because if the customer experience is good in some of these rural telecoms, I think they deserve the money. But yes, I agree with you, Chris. There's a lot of crappy rural telcos we're doing the bare minimum and they're a monopoly. So they have no like desire to change anything. Why don't we change? I mean, I know we've done 
all these kind of latency and everything other requirements, but why don't we look at the customer experience and reviews and what the customers are actually experienced before we allocate the money? Or is that just too hard? I think it is hard. And I don't know if there's a, a precedent. Go ahead, Travis. Remember we talked about that where, remember we were just, we just picked, we said, all right, let's take everybody's Google star rating. And if you have a four plus rating, your cost, your, your barrier of entry is almost zero. If you have a less, if you have a, between a one and a two, we're going to burden some of you like crazy because we want to make sure our money's well spent. Remember, we, we kind of had that idea. In the yeah, no, and I, I like question, that idea. How do you, who's going to police it? That's, that's it. And that's where it comes down to is someone, if you put that, you know, if you use that as a Google ranking, for example, you've created a market for someone yeah. to spoof Google rankings, right? Like that's yeah. unfortunately how it comes about. Remember, we also, we also said, you know, should the first $10 million that somebody gets in funds be unencumbered? meaning there should be no letter of credit for it and allow some of these smaller players to get a foundation to Heather's point where they can get some traction to start building some revenue to continue yeah. to feed the network. We talked about those ideas as well, but yeah. I don't know. This, none of these programs ever seem to hit the small, well-run operators. They always hit yeah. the, they always hit the Wall Street operator. But I'll just, I mean, like, you know, if you look at, um, Travis, you and I have talked before about, I feel like, um, you know, some of the waste uh, fraud that came out of the uh, pandemic programs, you know, the um, uh, the ones to like the small businesses were supposed to tap into if they didn't lay yeah. off their workers and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and, I, and I think it's worth noting, like, you know, those were programs that I think, like you said, were just aimed to try to be like, all right, let's just try to like get this money out to people that are doing the work. And, and the problem is it's just, it's amazing how fast the scammers come out and how bad the legal system is at dealing with them. But I have, I have warmed up to your idea or your statement a little bit where you said, well, if there's only 20% waste, it's probably a successful program. You know, mm -hmm. I thought you were, I thought you were insane having that conversation in the beginning in episode two. But by now, you're kind of right. You know, you're like, yeah. damn, if, if we can just get a lot of the money work, working well, it's better than in a lot of cases what's happening right now. So, yeah, and I, Heather, I know you, I think you got something that you want to jump in. I just want to say, I've said a couple of times I've wanted to say this. Like, I think there's an assumption that we are worse off now, like our government programs are worse now than they used to be. Uh, there's always been this issue. And, and I don't, and I think we're doing about, average like it might be doing worse in some areas and we're doing better in some other areas but like i don't think it's the case that the current government is particularly worse at this sort of thing this is a perennial problem go ahead heather well i was gonna say 20 i'd be happy if we got 50 percent to the people that really need it so <laughs> i mean well, let's also not forget that we haven't even mentioned the biggest problem that's going to encumber these networks from being built the current interest rate on the debt market is just, I mean, in the last year, I mean, it is just, ins it's in insane. People, people, well, people it's, it's not, out. yeah, it's, it's debt, it's labor rates, um, yeah. it's everything. It's so, been a really slow roll, this whole system. Like 95% of the of people I speak to in the industry are, are really pulling back their build sizes now. I mean, we're talking significantly 25. Yeah, 30, no, yeah. And we yeah. know that from the publicly traded companies too, that yeah. they're doing that. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about commissioner Anna Gomez before we go and then customer service. Uh, but a very quick question that Ruben had suggested was he wanted to, wanted to see our pets and to know what candy we like. So I don't, I don't, my pet is not handy. My two beagles, but nice Kim. 
I like her being him or her. Gator Catberg or something. Her name is Ruth Bader Catsburg. That's right. <laughs> she, yeah. has, she has one tooth. She yeah. um, she was named your own price at the uh, shelter. Um, so. Heather, and did you bring any pets with you to your hotel room? <laughs> no, but I don't have my own pet yet. I hope to get one in the next year or so, but I have... What kind of pet is Heather Gold getting? A dog. I have grand dogs. Well, I've had... I'm on, I have one grand dog that passed away, unfortunately, but now I have my other grand dog, Enzo, who is a 15-year-old rescue. She's a sweetie pie. Um, and she's actually going to be, we're going to be, well, my husband, not me, because I'm never home, but he will be babysitting Enzo over the next two weeks. And I think he's really excited about it. So yes, we love dogs. Um, and so I'm anxious to have a dog myself. I like how Heather's signing her husband up for a dog. She's never home, so we're going to get a dog. Get a puppy. No. Um, <laughs> it's, my daughter is also going to be traveling, and she asked. Uh, my husband if he would dog sit and he right. said of course because Enzi's so old we don't want to leave her with somebody who doesn't know her my but, uh, yeah so candy oh oh Carmel let's talk about finish up the, the pets for a second so we have uh, i have two beagles connor and moxie both uh both adopted um and uh they're getting quite older and trying to decide what's going on. my son is suddenly really infatuated with dachshunds and the only reason that i want to support him in potentially getting a dachshund is because of all the naming opportunities doc something is going to be great uh it's, it's a must-have so they uh, but you have to be so careful they have a lot of back problems yeah and they like they like to have um they like company I yeah, had a friend a of mine in high school, a friend of mine, his family had like three or four of them, and they were great right. romping around together. And yeah, the the back problem is common. So you're gonna name your dog Doxus? <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, I feel yeah. sorry for this puppy yeah. whenever it comes um, to yeah. fruition. Especially if if we had if we had two dogs and they were uh, sisters, one of them has to be Doxus. Yeah, <laughs> Doc Bro and Doxus. Oh, I like maybe. that. I like that. <laughs> Um, Travis, I'll give you, I'll give you the pleasant smile. That's a great idea. <laughs> oh, pets, pets. I've got uh, my fish tank. I've got a 1200 gallon fish tank. That's my, I love it. That's my hobby. And then of course, like all South kids that grew up on the South side of Minneapolis, I got a pit bull. So she's the best. Wow. She is the best. What's, what's her name? Allie. I've had two pits in my life. They're the best dogs. I love them. They're, yeah. they're absolutely the best. So she's 14. So we're kind of deep in the fourth quarter. So when when that time comes, I will probably not be participating for what, two to three years? Is that how long you mourn the dog? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, we'll, we'll save favorite candy for later. Um, uh, Anna Gomez has been confirmed. Uh, big news. Um as we said, it's one prediction that I've gotten correct. I'll take it uh, that she would be rapidly confirmed because she has corporate experience and has much less ambition than Gigi Sohn did to actually serve the people uh, that need um, a lot of help in the United States. So, <laughs> of course, she got through without any any sort of uh, campaign against her. Um, uh, any any expectations or thoughts on what the FCC will do now that it is a full complement of three v two? Nothing. Nothing will change. Nothing but, would be an improvement over bad. <laughs> so do we think that, it, like, do you really think, Chris, that anything will change? 
I do think some things will change. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I mean, I think some of the folks are, are, um, are trying to be strategic. I mean, I think everyone's recognized that the FCC is, uh, is poorly run is a shadow of what it should be. And I think some people, rather than just saying, let's give more authority to the FCC are trying to be more strategic and how, uh, the FCC could like, you know, get some stuff in that even if it itself wasn't policing might allow others to be effective through data collection or things like that. I don't know. So uh, I, I have hope. I, uh, I have to have hope. Uh, so I do. What would we even want? Do we feel like we've been missing out on something? Well, a hundred over a hundred would be great. One gig, yeah, I mean, Heather. Let's go bigger. Let's go one, one gig, gig symmetrical. I mean, so you're talking just, about the definition of broadband? Yep, yep. Yeah. I mean, come on. Let's just start and be realistic. Don't use the four. Don't use the seven oh whatever is it seven oh four report to like pat yourself on the back when nothing four seven seven. Thank you for no. That's the, the seven oh six report uses seven oh six. Thank yeah. you. Um, the seven oh six report should not be used to pat yourself on the back when nothing's improved. Right. I mean, Travis, if in response to your question, like, I mean, what would we really want realistically? Like, I would say a process to have a real data collection uh, is still something oh. that should be done. The FCC. Yeah, they could. You know, you're right, could, Chris. They could do um, um, non-disclosure so they can get the real information. They could just and they could just say, you know what? Like we had to act quickly. We acted quickly. Now we are going to engage in this other process. And in three years, we will have data that will be accurate and actionable. Uh, I don't think they're going to do that. I don't think there's even a chance of it, but they could. So to Heather's point, so we get better data to continue to propagate 25 by three. Well, no, 25 by three is pretty much out the window. It's going to be 120. Um, that's going to be the new broadband definition shortly. Uh, I'm Ooh. not going to bet wings on it, but I believe that strongly. <laughs> we, we better not overshoot, huh? Okay, because you're, you're 0 for 3. Well, we'll we'll get past 120 as soon as Comcast and Charter have rolled out Doxis 4. Um, it the definition of broadband is set by what the cable lobbyists will accept. See, I, 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 I think it's the wireless lobbyists that are setting it. Nobody listens to the wireless lobbyists. I don't are think. You sure. Okay. All right. Uh, it's really, it's really I, fishy to me. So, do you think that the FCC is embarrassed um, because NTIA is getting a lot more? Um, credibility and recognition for all they've done. And the FCC has kind of been um, on their coattails a little bit during this whole process, or do you not I think agree they with should that? be embarrassed, but I don't think they are. Heather, have you gotten <laughs> any impression that they recognize how bad they're doing? I So I haven't been in interaction with the FCC in a long time, so I don't want to say one way or the other, but to me, it sounds like it's not on their watch the current administration, it wasn't on their watch that the dissatisfaction with the FCC came up. So I certainly wouldn't want to point blame. I mean, I, I think don't know. If I, spent, I mean, I'll just Ardoff was such a disaster that Ardoff was um, bad. But if, if I had spent my career talking about the homework app and being so proud that I invented that term, I think I might've done a lot more to try to deal with that uh, over but, my term. But I know, but there wasn't until, she had five commissioners. She really didn't have, you know, they weren't going to get, they weren't going to be able to do anything. So maybe. Yeah, I just imagine, like, I mean, this is political leadership, you know, <laughs> like, this, like, oh no, like everything didn't go my way. Well, like, welcome to being in a position of power. Like that's what happened. I know, but look at, look at what's going on on the, down the street there. So. So to, to your question is Rosa Morsel, um to blame for any of this that has happened, or is this just a, 
you know, a, something that's been going on for years that we're just continuing well, down I, this pathway. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to blame her for anything. I mean, I think there was just a perception after Ardoff that that didn't work. And if we're going to give all this money to rural broadband, we had to try something new. Right. And I, I do want to know for people who, you know, I think are watching the show and, 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 you know, don't always know all of these people involved and whatnot, like, you know, Kim Travis and I have almost zero expertise on the FCC, what's really going on inside that room and things like that. Heather has more, but even so Heather's not like one of the criminologist types that are like, that are spending and I'm a lot date, of time you know, on my, Yeah. My information is dated. I'm more involved in the business aspects of broadband deployment today and less in, in wrangling over regulatory niceties. Right. But I mean, like, I mean, to just give you a sense, like, I mean, the FCC is about to give out tens of, or sorry, FCC data is going to be used in how to give out tens of billions of dollars and millions of homes are not eligible, maybe hundreds of thousands of homes, maybe more than 1 million. I don't know exactly what the range is, but a significant number of homes are not eligible because wireless companies, uh, the big wireless companies in particular have said, we can serve anyone in this radius, right? We talked about this on previous shows. I've talked about it on the on Community Broadband Bits podcast. They say like there's a big circle and we could serve any home within here with a high quality service. And the FCC hasn't bothered to say, well, can you serve every home? When To which the answer is no. And the, the wireless companies will probably even be honest about it. But the FCC hasn't even bothered to answer the question or ask the question. And so I just I look at this stuff and I just think like it's not serious. And you can point to the previous administration and you can point to the Obama administrations who also failed to get a lot of needed things done. But the simple fact is the FCC is not getting the job done. And it's really embarrassing right now. Well, it leads me to my question, then. What would we want them to do? Is it basically better data? Is that is that what we really need out of them? I think a bedrock. I mean, I just, I mean, you look at like what do government agencies do in my in and I'm in my opinion, you look at like NOAA and like they do a ton of things that are important. But one of the things that they do is they provide the baseline data that entire industries depend upon to know what the weather is going to do, right? I mean, people don't appreciate this when you ask, what does government do? Well, if you have a forecast app that you use, or you want to know why like we don't have like massive die-offs of crops in different areas, it's often because of government data that is accurate and allows industry to plan and do things. So, and it is just embarrassing the level of data we have on this industry, which is a key input for nearly all of our economy at this point. Let me ask you this. So we're now, we've been, we're now the FCC commissioners. Mitchell's, Mitchell, you can be the leader. <laughs> and, and Heather, Kim and I, we sit on the, on the little board or whatever. How are we going to do that? A lot of that data is guarded by all the ISPs. Uh, how, how are we going to get them to realistically dump realistic data? Let me, let me just, so let me just throw out one idea. And I think, I think it's a very good question you're asking, Travis. I'm curious what Kim and Heather have to say. My first is, I don't think these companies are as worried about the data as they claim or other people are afraid of. Fundamentally, their competitors know this data. And so where do they serve today? At what speeds? And there's a penalty if they um, significantly overstate their coverage. Um, at that point, I think we have much better data. It's not perfect, but it's much more in that direction. But I think it's really complicated. And I don't think these ISPs are really trying to always be so deceitful. Just for an example, inside of Team Utopia yesterday, we have a term called orderable. And then we have a term called available. Well, orderable means that they can sign up today. Available means they might have to do a small little, maybe a block build. And so 
it's very convoluted of what do they want and how do they want the data, the data to be. Right. And because some of these ISPs might not be really trying to hide anything. They, their data from years of doing this might not be to the best quality that it should be. Right. And this is, so this is where Travis's question of, of realistically what can be done to be clear. One of the reason the FCC doesn't ask better questions is because if they want to change a form, they have to go through a hellacious multi-agency process to get that approved. And this is one of the things that a recent book, I think it's called Recode America or Recoding America by Jennifer Polka. Wonderful book. I think I've plugged it before. She talks about this. Um, and so there is a realistic penalty that it's not just a matter of being like, oh, we're going to ask some new questions. It would be painful, but I think it's important enough to try to try to try to do that sort of a thing. Heather, go ahead. No, I don't disagree with you. I just I don't know if the institutional will is there. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, I just, you know, I, I don't know. It's always easy to be, what do they call it, an armchair quarterback, and we can sit here and go, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. But I like to put myself in the position of saying, okay, they magically put us in charge. What are we going to do to make it a better situation? And I, I don't know. I think it would be a very challenging situation. I think that the FCC, right or wrong, relying on the states is probably the right answer. The states know better than, than the feds do what's going on in each individual area. And yeah, we and a push lot of that. states are yeah, and a lot of states are doing that. Yeah, they're doing yeah. their own mapping and they're flexing like their that. muscles now. Some aren't doing great, but they will get better at it. It wasn't the FCC's decision, by the way. It was Congress's decision to take it away from the FCC because the FCC was doing so poorly. Um, but Travis, I do think you know you asked the good question. What would I do if I was there? But yeah. let's also remind ourselves, the FCC, it's not a matter of like, the proper question would be, what if we had 10 years of training of understanding how this stuff worked, and then we we're in that in that position? The people that go to the FCC are not random people who are plucked out of nowhere. Um, and so it is a little bit harder to answer um, uh, because anyone who's at the commission would have spent years preparing for it. But well, I, I think you- I understand that, but if we stood in front of the FCC and said, if they, if they called us all in, they said, hey, we saw your episode 80. Come to come to Washington and talk to us. Hell, I wouldn't know what I would want from them. Better but I think we need standardization first, guys. I think we need standardization with the ISPs of what we are expecting them and how we of them and how are they supposed to report things? Because we don't even have that today necessarily of this is how you should categorize stuff. It's it's a mixture of how every ISP is supposed to categorize it on this like granular side, and then we put it then they're supposed to translate that into what the FCC wants. So I think we have to go back to very much a reporting and what we want to see of how um, these ISPs should count, like categorize what, is the what data everything we looks. really want. Yeah. Yeah. But even though, like, like going back to my previous thing of what does this look like? If how do you categorize a house that has a device in it? What do you categorize a house that has the connection in front of it, you need to go back and like add standardization to those aspects in order to like get the reporting upstream to look better. Because that I think that is a fundamental problem. Yeah. And I do think, Travis, I would do if we were in that scenario that you laid out, what I think you do when you are in that scenario is I would call other people and be like, hey, like, what should I tell them? And I would start getting a better sense from different people in the field because that's- I know I would really I mean, I, I, if I was in front of the FCC, here's what I would want. I'd like more more Wi-Fi spectrum. If they could open up the six gigahertz channel, the whole thing for us to use, this would be an amazing thing to happen. 
So. Yeah, and that would be a concrete ask, and that's something that I do think I would be pushing. Yes, I if you, we're at the FCC, happened. that happened. The last FCC did it. Well, I wasn't sure if you were meaning that the uh, that there was more to open up on well, top of that. I left that softball out there for you to hit. You know, to talk about the greatest FCC commission of all. No, time. but no, but that's my point. Is that like that's <laughs> one of the things that we would do? Is that we would look for the. Um, opportunities to maximize spectrum for instance he's, and, and he's not share. letting you take him down he's, he's not he's letting you take him down somebody. today we've had this i mean i just feel like anyone who's he's watched the show mindset, knows right he's in the like, rant mindset i mean many of our current problems can be traced back to uh the chair who didn't take his job very seriously except for uh pretending that he cared about rural areas um you know he did several good things he um he initiated the um uh, the, the the window for a tribal priority for spectrum is huge. Uh, and I think there's several things that if I had a chance to meet uh, Ajit Pai, I'd probably thank him for those things. And I would probably not dwell on the many other things where he screwed us. <laughs> but, you know, you know, we often talk about this, but sometimes I wonder if we also forget what's going on right now. There's four of us plus however many people all over the country slash world that are communicating through this medium that didn't exist when I was a kid. So, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of positive has happened too. Let's not forget about this over the years. Yeah, no, I've no doubt about I that. I don't, I don't want to get in that habit of just constantly moaning and complaining. I think that's a good point. I think we do need a compliment on of how much has been put in the ground and how much is getting accomplished every single day. Because I think sometimes we do focus on what hasn't been done. But I, right. I like your positivity over there, Travis. What's happened well, to you? And what, and if yeah. you look at the percentage of unserved and how that is falling, regardless of what we're doing, um, you know, I think you're right, Kim. I think, and Travis, I do think we need to focus more on what is happening. And not just at the federal level, but a lot of it's driven by states and communities realizing they needed to make changes and not just to collect more franchise fees. Yeah. I, I also will just say, and we'll have to wrap here. Um, that if we were able to solve all of the problems, then we would leave our children with a terrible burden of not having anything interesting <laughs> to do. Anything to, like they're going to be worried about something to do, right? Solving problems is is something that I think is in, is like the, the more satisfaction comes from that than anything. I love playing a video game, but solving a problem is something that uh, it's just makes your day. Toronto radios for everyone. There you go. Yeah. And I don't think my cat really is concerned about having a problem um, to focus on when I pass. So, but thank you, Chris. <laughs> you know, I do think it'd, I just cool. hope I think it'd be cool if they invited us to the FCC to talk to it. That'd be neat. I might actually put on a tie for that. No, I won't. With the black shirt, black t-shirt, and just a tie on top yeah, of it. I might put my coat on if they invite <laughs> me and say, all right, you smart blanks, what would you do? And then we can watch Mitchell really go... <laughs> I uh I have I I would uh I would feel a lot of stress I'll tell you that right now <laughs> because I would take it seriously in ways that um would really it would very be diff a difficult time so I'm glad I'm not going to have that opportunity. Oh good, um, I, I wouldn't take it seriously, so we could be bookends of the whole. Event. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank Heather for thank you for joining us. It was fun as always. Uh, thank you, Travis and Kim. Thank you, Rye, for producing. Wonderful to have you back. Uh, and um, thank you, Ruben, for jumping in so much. Uh, you know, Juan, uh, we're sorry for your loss. I'm 
um, it's so hard, um, to, to have a pet pass. So, um, that would be a problem that we should ask the FCC to solve, uh, immortal pets. Um, and, um, we will be back, I think in two weeks, I want to say likely. So, uh, we'll circulate a, a time and see if we can, uh, get on back on the horse. But uh, until then it's been a wonderful episode.